the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Uh, every uh, third hour on Tuesday, we bring in Hugh and Lewis Holman, but today it's just Hugh Holman. Lewis will be back with us uh, next week, I believe. Uh, Hugh Holman is uh, former mayor of Tempe. He is an attorney in town and educator, founder of uh, several schools, and um, he has been walking us through the things we need to know, the things that are important to know about the COVID virus, but we're also the coronavirus, but we're also going to have a really interesting conversation that uh, piggybacks off what we started in the last hour of the most important conservative books to him. He brought with him a now, whole box. Now, now, you shouldn't spoil the punchline. No, I won't spoil it, but okay. stay tuned for it. First off, uh, Mr. Holman, Dr. Holman, do you, if Jill Biden is a doctor, you're a doctor. That's true. You have a Juris doctor. My, my bride would, uh, she bristles anytime anybody utters the word doctor near me because she's a real doctor. She's a real doctor. Yeah, you're she, a Juris doctor. Yeah. You can help people with their Juris. Exactly. Uh, talk to me about where we are with co-vaccines. I want to hear about what the situation is with vaccines. There seems to be, again, a blame America first attitude going on at the New York Times. God love there? Gene Kirkpatrick. Yeah. Um, so I would start with, if you don't mind, we'll back into the vaccines. Uh, just to give folks a sense of what's going on in Arizona today. So, again, kudos to our governor for refusing to go back into lockdown and do the things that folks uh, were calling for, especially our superintendent of public instruction who wanted him to shut down schools from the state level and said, no, it's a local decision. And now, of course, we have the CDC and others saying schools need to reopen immediately, uh, that there are lots of measures that can be taken to protect students and teachers, and that needs to happen immediately. And kudos again to the governor for doing that. Not everybody likes him these days, and I've had my arguments with him. But in this instance, you've got to give credit where credit's due, and that's one. Two, so the state of Arizona utilization of hospitals, it is still at that terribly frightening 90% of uh, inpatient beds. Terribly frightening. That's in quotation marks because, of course, the state number does not include the surge beds, which adds about another 25 percent. So it drops that number really down to about uh, 65 percent utilization. But more important, that is exactly the same number as it was a week ago. And yet, the COVID number is down to 40 percent utilization. And the non-COVID is at 49%. I need to stop you right switched. there. So, what, just so people understand this, when they hear that our hospitals are at 90%, that it's not 90% of COVID, 90% COVID patients. It it's as not. the Arizona Republic right. would report it. It's 90% COVID and other things. Right. Right. So, yes, it's true that COVID makes up some of the population of the beds uh, or in the beds, but other About things half. do too. And now it's below half. Okay. Now, now it's dropped to 40%. And non-COVID is at 49%, almost 50%. Well, isn't that a tragedy still? The right answer is, as we've discussed and, and folks in the hospital organizations don't want to admit, you have to have people in the beds of the hospitals or you go broke. Hotels understand this. Hotels get that. So do hospitals. And so they try to keep them full. 
And the reason we were getting so much, in my view, angst and dram from the leading hospital organization in the state is because they were making more money on uh, patients who were coming in for non-COVID originally. That is, uh, surgeries that are are not mandatory, they are elective. And you make more money on elective surgeries because those are where a lot of the money is made. Uh, And they wanted to retain elective procedures. Well, they've retained them since the governor rolled back his order precluding elective procedures. Well, they still want to keep that a greater proportion. Well, the feds made up for that by giving Medicaid, Medicare kickers 20% increases in the payments that a hospital would would receive if somebody were a COVID patient. Well, what's a COVID patient? As we've joked, were you in for a hip surgery and happened to test positive for COVID? So you're a hip surgery patient with COVID as opposed to a COVID patient who came in with COVID symptoms. There's been a lot of that going on. So hospitals started testing every single patient because then they could mark them as a COVID patient and, if they could, get the kicker for the extra revenue. Imagine that. We've created incentive programs to cause this new industry of COVID and COVID-related diseases and deliveries. So we've got a whole cottage industry, and it's not even a cottage. At this stage, it's a mansion industry making piles of money off of a, quote, pandemic. So Arizona's going in the right direction. The governor held his line. The the crisis seems to be abating. Uh, that is also true around the Imagine U.S. Imagine that without doing what California did. Without, yes. What else could California do? And in fact, it's amazing. When you're under the threat of a recall and only a, a few signatures short of getting recalled, suddenly everything's better. Yeah. And you can reopen restaurants. Yeah. So I actually took a trip. Uh, my wife and I uh, took a trip, or I should I say I took a trip. I wanted to investigate how California was handling uh, the shutdown yeah. in contrast to what we were doing in Arizona. So having been the mayor of Tempe, we have Mill Avenue. It has all kinds of restaurants and bars and other stuff. And some of the solutions were outdoor dining here. Uh, Scottsdale allowed little sidewalk cafes to be sprung up. They created them in parking spaces. California did some of the same stuff. So I went to Santa Barbara a week, 10 days ago to look at how they built out State Street. The governor had uh, dine out only, meaning you could dine outdoors or carry out. Then he shut all the dine out down. So here you had restaurants who were on their last breath spend massive amounts of money to build out these little areas, and then he shut that down. That's why he was getting recalled. Restaurateurs went crazy. And a restaurateur drove the entire recall effort, and lots of people got on board. Suddenly, miracle of miracles, uh, everybody got better the moment that the recall effort got really close to to succeeding. Uh, I expect it uh, still ultimately. Yeah, I was talking to a Californian. They think that the recall will go through. The challenge is finding a good Republican to – that's correct. And, and uh, uh, unfortunately, the last one was uh, uh, having relations with his maid. So that that took care of the Republican brand in California. I forgot about that. Uh, yeah. Well, unfortunately, uh, I haven't. Uh, so that's COVID in a nutshell. But the bigger reason I wanted to chat about COVID is the drumbeat that the Trump administration failed miserably in rolling out the vaccine. Failed miserably, that we, they left us no plan and nothing was in place. Starting according from to, scratch. Yes, exactly right, says the Biden administration. And now let's look at the worldwide numbers. So if you actually put in context how many people have been vaccinated under the Trump program in the U.S., 
it's approximately 9.6 people per hundred. Well, that doesn't seem so much, except it adds up to 32.22 million people in the U.S. have been vaccinated. Over 32 million. Over 32 million. And as you've already noted a couple of times on your show, Seth, uh, that's more than the total number of cases in the U.S. during the entire pandemic, which is about about 26 26, million. million, So we've already vaccinated more people than who ever got infected by the disease. Can we stop on that for a moment? Please. I, I just want to underscore that point. We are told 27 million cases. Let's call it 27 million just to be liberal for a moment. 27 million cases is a nightmare scenario we have been told for since March. Well, we were told that everybody uh, who gets it will die. Any, 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 any parade of horribles you could come to. And Joe Biden doesn't cease talking about how bad 27, 27 million cases is. Well, if 27 million cases is bad, 32 million vaccines should be equivalently great, shouldn't it? One would expect that. that, I mean, if the extreme is 27 and now we have a new extreme on the other side of the ledger that's 32, that's bigger than than the extreme bad, you know, I just it just seems to me we should be kicking our kicking our heels that we have more vaccines out there than we do cases. That's correct. And if you add up just the cases that and deaths in the United States, you're running at about 1.7% mortality rate. Mm-hmm. Keep in mind, I don't view the 26 million cases as actually nearly accurate because oh, it yeah, does not it include the asymptomatics. Sure. So we, we suspect it could be as high as... A third uh, more, maybe? Uh, well, it could be as high as five times that. Okay. Because asymptomatic is potentially 80%. It okay. could be as low as twice that okay. or a little more than that, uh, 60%. Um, the, the point is that we were told from the beginning, if you get the disease, you'll die. Even taking the raw numbers as uh, the mortality rate, that the case mortality rate, the number of people who are reported with the case, that is, they've gotten tested because they had symptoms and they tested positive. Keeping in mind the error in that data. People who tested positive once went back and tested again and again until they tested negative so they could go back to work. We're not testing people. We're testing cases, and the cases are multiple reports of the same person. I had COVID-19. I tested positive one day. I went the next day to make sure it wasn't a false positive. That's two. I tested on day 10. That's three. Those were three positive cases for one human being. So it's quite possible that this number is inflated by 50 percent, 100 percent. And then I tested a fourth time negative on day 14th before I would go back into my office. That's a typical story. Our, one of our large employers, Arizona State University, mandates that if you get COVID-19 and test positive, you cannot go back to work until you test negative. So you have this pattern throughout the state of Arizona and throughout the United States. That's a starting point to understand how well we've actually done with this disease in one point, and we should come back to talk about that. Yeah, let's fill that out on the other side because it actually reduces the mortality rate. Correct. The case mortality rate. I'm Seth Leibson. He's Hugh Hallman, 602-508-0960 if you have questions, and we're going to do some fun stuff with political philosophy too. Don't go away. We will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Delighted to have with us Hugh Hallman, who brought in not only his catalog of great books, but his great mind. We're talking a little bit about COVID. We're going to do a little political philosophy in just a moment. Um, 
Hugh, we were talking about the mortality rate, and we think that it's even less bad, that's the way to put it, less bad than what we've been told because of the number of cases being smaller than the actual cases, right? So we've got a lot of reasons why the numbers are all goofed up. And so rather than say, I know the answer to this, I'm just raising questions because the data has now been so badly manipulated and goofed up consistently across the board, not just in the United States, not just state by state, but across the world. So here's what we're talking about. If the United States really had 26.6 million cases, uh, 26.4, I think, is the most recent uh, data, and you've had and we've had 444,900 deaths, that calculates out to a mortality rate of 1.68, something like that. Um, But. That then has to be questions. Instead of 1.68% mortality rate, if you get the disease, you got a 1%, 1.68% chance of dying. You have to first understand the cases that are being reported are only people who've tested. Well, who doesn't get tested? People who don't show symptoms. And from the earliest days of the, of the pandemic, we had studies out of California and one out of New York that was we're suggesting that the asymptomatic, those are people who don't show symptoms, could be as high as 80% of the total. Well, if you're not getting tested and you don't know you have the disease, you may be spreading it, but you still have the virus and are not dying from it. And it looks like if you use that number, then the total mortality rate should be divided by five. That is 1.68 suddenly becomes 0.3 or 0.31, 0.32, something We're like that. close to something called the flu, aren't That's we? right. So at 0.32. So that's assuming that part of the issue. You have to think about how many people have the virus but show no symptoms. But second, in the United States, we're following a different protocol than almost any other country on the planet. What we know is that the, that the U.S. says if you've tested positive for COVID-19 in the last 60 days and then you die, you're marked down on your death certificate in the first box that says the cause of death is COVID. Even if the physician says, no, this was a heart attack, the person had a heart attack, yeah, they tested positive. The, the CDC and the WHO said, no, 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 you've got to put COVID in the box one as the precipitating cause of death even if it was something else. Lead poisoning, as we joked about the five guys who tested positive for COVID but got shot. Um, So that is a problem. So now we've got the push to mark things down as COVID, even if they're not. But moreover, it's in 60 days. Well, the UK was at a 60-day test. They said if you had COVID-19 any time in the 60 days and then died, you would be marked as a COVID death. They changed their protocol to 28 days in mid-May, June. In that time frame. And somebody was smart enough to go back and look at their numbers and say, how big a change would there have been in the proportion of people who would who were marked down as covid and instead would now not be covid deaths? Because instead of looking back 60 days, you only look back 20 days. And the number was about a 40 percent reduction. No kidding. So if you apply that now to the U.S. numbers, instead of seven saying you have four hundred and forty uh, 4,962 deaths, you would only have 266,977 deaths. I know that's a lot of numbers, but it's 266,000 people instead of 444,000. Well, what's that turn your mortality rate? Again, assuming that you only report the people who've tested positive for COVID. That's 26.4 million. Well, now it's a 1% mortality rate. Divide that by five because 80% of the people are asymptomatic. Now you're down to 0.2. That is the flu. I don't know whether that's right, 
But I'm raising these questions because the rush to get data to prove a political point has been the mantra here. And people with smart minds ought to be thinking about why this is so flawed. You've got a bad protocol for how you're identifying people with death, saying it's 60 days, not 28 days, like other countries. You've got this push to force people onto the COVID death certificate who died of something else like a heart attack, and yet they're marked as COVID. All of that pressure to change the trajectory of this. And what's the outcome? We have taken massive steps to lock down a society that is the most productive in the in human history and has brought more people out of poverty than any other experiment in human history. And we are trying to destroy that. Why? The only answer is there are folks who have a different vision of human behavior and human life that they know better answers. And that's why this stack of books is here. The stack of books that I brought in, so Seth, uh, before the show, said, gee, I want to talk the most uh, important books. So you brought uh, 11. So I brought 11, <laughs> and it's missing two. And it's it's missing actually two. missing three if you include the Bible, but I'm just going to take that as assumed for anybody who understands that it Can it we includes... return to that? Can yes, we you, bookmark can. the question of the Bible as a yep. conservative book? I want to come back on that. Not as a conservative book. I, you asked me about conservative books, and I brought in the books that made okay. a difference to me. Okay. They all happen to be effectively conservative books. Okay. Uh, because the big theme of all of this and what I think the Bible tells us is forget talking about it as a religious text, yeah. as a philosophical text, as a historical text. Yeah. It does something that this set of books did for me as well. And that is it describes human behavior. It describes what it means to be a human being. And folks from the conservative classical liberal side, the founders of this country looked at us as human beings and said, what are we like and how do we take people as we find them and create a system of governance that will assure the protection of their interests for the longest period of time? The Bible describes human behavior in all of its great and horrible features. And our founders, James Madison and uh, Alexander Hamilton and all the other folks from John Adams to Jefferson understood that question as liberal artists, as well-read, uh, thoughtful people. Who are we dealing with? Human beings where they really are. And we want to craft a government structure that will allow them to succeed at the greatest opportunity for the longest period of time. As real human beings, they said a philosopher king is a lovely idea, except that you might find one out of a hundred who are true philosopher kings. After that, you get tyrants. We can't have that. They looked at the model for uh, Greece. Gee, how do you form a little uh, a little democracy? Well, what happened there? It all exploded. Why? Because internecine warfare, all the little tiny problems that people wanted to fetch out, they beat one another to death, and it lasted 40 years and exploded. They looked at the Great Republic of Rome and what happened there and how it ultimately, after 483 years or 463 years, depending, collapsed. They looked at all of that and said, we have to deal with real human beings and create something that fits what we really are, not what we wish we were. You see why I keep this guy around? You see why I keep this guy around? 
Let me put in a word for our sponsor, Balance of Nature. I take it every single day. It's the most effective whole food supplement on the market. One daily dose gives you 10 servings of fruits and vegetables, all natural, vine-ripened, no sugar, no chemicals, no GMOs. My friends have loved it. My family, who I have given it to, have loved it. And they have a great deal, 35% off and free shipping off your first preferred order of their fruits and veggies, which is what I take. Give them a call at 800-2468-751 or go to balanceofnature.com. Make sure to use discount code BALANCE. Little John Sebastian there for you. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Now the fun begins. Um, Hugh Hallman brought, you know, he, he he doesn't take anything unseriously. <laughs> no, he really doesn't. And I said, what books were really important to you? What books really influenced you the most? And he usually comes in with a really old, beautiful, antique um, satchel, briefcase. And today he came in with a legal box packed with 11 or 10, yeah, 11 books. Two are missing. He wanted three, me to see them physically. So I just tweeted him out. If you're on Twitter and you follow me, at Seth Liebson, you can see the picture of him with his books. And we're going to walk through them. Absolutely. Or at least... Uh, you want me to start or do you want to start? Sure. Pick yours. Well, For I both mean... both of us, this one's important. Start there. Okay, so you brought the Federalist Papers. Why the Federalist Papers? The Federalist Papers enunciate the entire basis for every single concept and provision of our Constitution and why it's so great. Uh, why it is miraculous. But more important for me, the Federalist Papers are Madison and primarily Madison and Hamilton's explanation of the reason why they selected each clause and how it how the document was built to reflect real human beings. The most obvious one we've talked about before. 51, I think. Well, no, it's in 10, or I think. 10. 10. It's when men were angels. I think men that's were 51. Is it? You, know, you might be right. See, I, get, I forget sometimes. But it's okay. The, the Same point, author. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> it, it, Madison in both cases. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, and it's really about pitting human interest against human interest. Mm -hmm. That the whole point is that these folks understood what human beings are. And that we're imperfect. And you have to build a government that understands that human beings are imperfect. And you use the imperfections, not the perfections, but the imperfections that uh, human beings have to set up the government to be sustained. And so we, you know, we learn about it in grade school and don't really understand the features. What the Federalist Papers do is describe each of those features, but also provide the historic context in which they crafted those solutions and understood when uh, senators start knifing Caesar, that really happened. It's not just a play or a movie. These things really occurred. And these men and women, John Adams' wife wasn't so bad, neither was uh, uh, Dolly Madison. These are educated people who are looking at who human beings really are, what it means to be human, and taking that nature and crafting a government to fit it, not to fit some perfect ideal of what we would like ourselves to be. And that's important in modern context because the conservative movement— continues to understand 
what human beings are. Incentives matter. That, as uh, Milton Friedman would explain, as we've described and discussed uh, previously, that human beings are jealous and greedy and self-interested. Well, then build a system that creates the best result out of those incentives. And that, that as Milton Friedman described uh, brilliantly on Phil Donahue's show 35 years ago, that society is built on greed, whether it's the United States or China or, or Russia or anything, because human beings are self-interested. That self-interest or greed, if you want to use the pejorative term, makes us make decisions. And to pretend that we are somehow selfless as our core nature misses the point that let's take the worst of us. And if you can build something based on the worst of our human character that can sustain and result in great things for the greatest number of people, that's a pretty darn good accomplishment. Right. So it's to tame the savages, the tame, the savageness of man, as one of the Roman poets put it right, because Madison talks about how much better read you are than I am. No, not really. Liberty is to faction what errors to fire. I think that's in 10. And that's the point, how to constrain and control that. Now, your version is the original version written by Clinton or edited by Clinton Rossiter. That's correct. There's two official versions. It's Clinton Rossiter and Charles Kessler. Charles Kessler is a professor at our alma mater, Claremont McKenna, or Claremont Men's in your case. Clinton Rossiter is is passed away um, at his own hand over the riots at Cornell, believe it or not. But he said something I shall never forget about Abraham Lincoln. You know what Clinton Rossiter said about Abraham Lincoln? He pointed out that he was shot on Good Friday and died on Easter weekend, thus making him the Christ martyr of America's democratic passion play. Is that not a beautiful sentiment? That is Abraham Lincoln is the Christ martyr of America's democratic insight. passion play. We'll go through the other books when we come back, and we will be right back. Did you ever see Jimmy Buffett in concert, Hugh? I did not and wished I had. Not too late. No, I understand. Still, I, still I, not this year. I but. missed Sarah Vaughn in concert. She broke her arm and then oh, died. No. Yes, that was the one I really regret. I did see Frank Sinatra in concert. Yes, you and I both and, did. Yeah, yeah, different times, different places. The one thing we have in common. Among many. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. We are taking a tour through Hugh's um, elitist of selections from his library. Do you want to say something more about the Federalist, or should we move forward? Well, we better move forward, except that uh, to commend it to people's attention, you can't read the whole thing. No. Nobody ever does. Well, a few of us do. But truly, if if you're within earshot here, just write down. You want to read Federalist number 10 and Federalist 51. And 78. Okay, I'll give you 78. Hamilton 78 on I'll, the judiciary. I'll, I'll give you that. But the reason for 10 and 51 for me is because it's, it's Madison's clarity uh, about... We're dealing with human beings, and he repeats it in so many different lovely ways about why Greece failed, why Rome failed, and uh, the reason I find those funny is because he then also sneaks in words about how brilliant the men must be who've created a constitution who takes into consideration all of that. Since they're writing it as Publius and uh, uh, you know anonymously, they're complimenting themselves through the back door. By the uh, way, he does this at the age of 35. 35, 36, 37. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, Take me to another book. The uh, So a couple of these are placeholders, but I'm going to take one that's most people won't, won't have read and probably sh- wouldn't have to. But the reason it's crucial to me is it's uh, uh, 
Richard Posner's Economic Analysis of the Law. Is he a teacher of yours at Chicago? He is a teacher of mine at Chicago, a mentor, and I read this when I was uh, at uh, Claremont Men's College in economics. Oh, you read it before you went to law school. Which is why I then went to the University Uh, of Chicago so I could study at the feet of the great minds who thought this way. And what the economic analysis of the law is about is that when creating legal systems like Madison does, you should build legal systems and create laws that are effective and efficient and take people where they are. And uh, Richard Posner created with a handful of other people the idea of economic analysis of legal systems. Let me put a stronger point to it. He created a school of thought. In well, the legal field, and the reason I didn't use that, right? I, the reason I didn't use that is because the real author of that school of thought, at age twenty-two or twenty-three, wrote his first paper in the nineteen thirties, Ronald Coase. Oh, okay. That Coase's theorem. Coase's that, right. theorem that became the grounding, the ground basis for understanding what an interesting idea. He was an economist, uh, and uh, also one of my teachers. So he died at uh, age a hundred something or other, uh, but I had him when he was in his eighties. Uh, at the University of Chicago. And these people understood that law has to work in a way that's consistent with human beings' behavior and that incentives matter. And that's what that book's all about. So that's a placeholder that is the economic legal version of what Madison wrote as political philosophy. To then understand that in a fun way, and the reason this is on my bookshelf as a must-read for people, it's P.J. O'Rourke's Eat the Rich. And he does a tour of the world to look at good capitalism, bad capitalism, socialism, and uses real-life examples of how governments and societies are working to explain and show why it is that the rudimentary, selfish capitalism that exists in the United States works best over the long term. That one might like to be like Sweden and have a socialist government that works effectively generally. Except you have to understand that Sweden has six and a half million people and they're all cousins. So when you have a narrow bandwidth of social interaction and very few people, you can make those kinds of things work a little better. But when you have 330 million people who come from across the globe because this was the shining city on a hill that we could all come to and stake in the ground our new opportunity to succeed, it means you have to be a little softer touch on the government because we have such different kinds of people that doing Act A has a very different impact on this person than it does on that person. And if you want to know how different we are, take a simple test. Go out into the parking lot at the job you work and see all the different kinds of cars. You think government can create one car that fits all of our tastes? The proof is in your parking lot. All the different colors, shapes, sizes, conditions, qualities, those are all reflections of human behavior. And what P.J. O'Rourke does brilliantly in this book, Eat the Rich, is explain that by using real examples from around the world. I asked you, we have breakfast on Saturdays after we run. We run every Saturday, we have breakfast. And I asked you, I got a call, uh, an email from a listener who said, if I were to give one book to someone who I want to understand conservative, the conservative movement, the conservative cause, what would it be? I'm immediately racing Whitaker Chambers, William Biden. And you said P.J. O'Rourke because he does it with a sense of humor. <coughs> it's readable. It apprehensible. It, correct. Yeah. It's readable. You'll finish it. And if I told you Conscience of a Conservative, which is one of the three books missing on this pile, I didn't bring it today because it's signed and I revere it too much to drag around in a box. Um, that's a great book. 
Uh, it's written as a everyman. Barry Goldwater really was an everyman. But I would then also say, and uh, I, I think one of our mentors, Harry Jaffa, would not have spoken as highly as I do, but Ayn Rand, in The Fountainhead, not Atlas Shrugged, but The Fountainhead, writes a book that helps explain the human condition and that people are... Uh, want to succeed, they want to achieve great things, and if you let them do that, the results of their work will benefit many, 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 many people. And so when we see in P.J. O'Rourke's stuff as as a real look at uh, how uh, the world works, Ayn Rand takes that and turns it into a novel. Then you've got the real political philosophy, and I think the two, bes- besides the, um, uh, the, the Federalist Papers, are uh, John Locke's The Second Treatise of Government, which really is the ground basis on which the the U.S. Constitution is built, and the understanding of humanity that Thomas Hobbes explains in The Leviathan. And The Leviathan... uh, I for, always forget the first word describing human humanity in its state of nature. Nasty, uh, brutish, and short. Uh, you're missing a couple. So it's, so it's solitary, nasty, brutish, and short, and I forget the first word. Um, people are... People are- Driving into the sides of the road, crashing, wanting to tell us it's solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, poor. and short. Solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, <laughs> and short. And some people have described me that way, except I'm six feet tall, so I don't fit the short. <laughs> I thought I was six feet tall, and you're taller than me. You're six one. No, no, no. We'll you're, be right You're back. making it up. We'll This song is our tribute to the Enlightenment, which Hugh Hallman has been talking about through the works, the books that he has uh, told us were the most influential to him. Do you want to say a concluding thought on these great... What Alan Bloom called the importance of arranging the furniture of your mind. That's what good books do. They arrange the furniture of your mind. Right, Hugh? I think that's exactly right. And that's why these things sit around on bookshelves in my home. Uh... I don't often reread them, although the Federalist Papers I probably grab several times a year to remember a quote. But in concluding, you see that on this pile, I the best I could do for Lincoln is a book on Lincoln on leadership. And I actually learned from this book, uh, the author, um, Donald Phillips, took l- examples of Lincoln's leadership throughout his era, throughout his life, and use them to explain how good leaders could operate. And in fact, I relied on this book when I became the mayor of the city of Tempe and as a headmaster, and I've continued to rely on it because it's got such good lessons. And my sadness is there is not a book by Abraham Lincoln that one could go read and understand his philosophy. He came from an era when writing one's memoirs and other things were not particularly valuable or valued. And instead, what one has and one should read are his speeches. And as we were thinking about the age of the people who were writing these great books, that Madison was in his mid-30s when he was writing the Federalist Papers. He had educated himself so well. Well, Abraham Lincoln was age 29 when he wrote one of the most powerful speeches, I think, that have been written in uh, the English language, and that is Lincoln's speech to the Lyceum. And I would encourage anybody to please Google that if you want to read not only great American literature, but great political philosophy. 
This was a man who understood for our times when we have great controversies that are roiling our society. We need to understand that this country is so strong and its people so connected that the only way in which we destroy this unique experiment, this shining city on the hill, is by doing it ourselves. We will never succumb to a tyrant from across the oceans. We will only have death by suicide. And Abraham Lincoln tells us today, we've got to knock off the craziness because this society is at risk and we need to live it. Amen. God bless. Class dismissed.